0: I invite you to rise for the reading of the Holy Gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke, glory to you, Lord Christ. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the man, desiring to justify himself, said, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, saying, there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho who fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was coming down that same road, and when he saw the man, passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite came and saw the man and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he was journeying, came to where the man was, saw him, had compassion on him... He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, placed him on to his own animal, and took him to an inn and cared for him. And the next day brought out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I return. Jesus said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And he said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. The gospel of the Lord prays to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired your servant Luke to record these words of Jesus. We believe these words not only had power in the day that Luke wrote them, but these words have power this day because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, open this word for us now, perhaps as never before, that we would be changed more and more to be like Christ. For the sake of the world, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Our world has forgotten how to be neighbors. Many in our church have forgotten how to be neighbors. The Dallas Stars lost to the Stanley Cup this week. Those of you who were betting on how quickly in the sermon that would come up, I'll leave that to you. But it was interesting watching the stars get this far, the final, in my opinion, and many others, by the time we got to game five, they got to game six, but by the time they got to game five, it was just a downward trajectory. You could just see it coming. They were exhausted, they were injured, and they were just outplayed by a better team. The question is then, watching game six, why did I even watch to the end? Like why even bother when you know your team is going to lose? And the answer is this, I watched to the end so I can see the handshake line. Now for those of you who aren't familiar with hockey, hockey does something unique in professional sports in that at the end of every playoff series, the two teams line up after Beating each other's brains in over the series, fighting hard, bitter rivalry. They line up and the whole team and the coaching staff shake hands and even hug at times the members of the opposing team. And it's an amazing thing to watch because after all this bitter division, all this hard fought conflict to win, you see at the end of the day, they're actually friends. They respect each other. They care for each other. They like each other. Kind of reminds me of the relationship between the late justices, Ginsburg and Scalia, where, as we saw after Justice Ginsburg's death, all the stories coming out of how close this very liberal justice in the Supreme Court was with this very conservative justice in the Supreme Court. They were bitterly divided in opinions. In fact, they would even write pretty scathing contrary opinions of the other. Ginsburg writing of Scalia at one point that this judgment he's written is clearly a not fully baked judgment. And he would write back and say, this is the worst of jurisprudence I've read in my career. This is what they'd say of each other professionally. But every New Year's Eve, their families would spend the evening together year after year after year. They were close personal friends, yet bitterly divided professionally. You see, it seems that the solution is not trying to imagine that there's no division in our world. The solution isn't trying to imagine there's no enemies and no division and no divided views on the way we should live our lives and live this world. The solution is learning to recognize that there is division and there are enemies and that we learn to love our enemies. We learn to love those who are different and divided from us in opinion. Learning to see enemies as neighbors. You see, in Jesus' day, in his earthly ministry, he lived in the context of a bitterly, culturally, ethnically divided world. He knew the exact kind of divisions that we live through in our day. And in response to those divisions, he told a parable. If you turn with me here in Luke chapter 10, we find the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I know, everybody knows this parable. We know it so well. We know it so well, we actually sometimes don't hear it anymore. It's so familiar, we begin to lose the power of this parable. We can so easily forget that the hero of the story, the Samaritan, is a bitterly hated person according to the Jewish audience that was hearing this. The Samaritans were bitterly hated by the Jews, and it went both ways. The Jews saw the Samaritans as half-breeds, as immoral, as ungodly. In fact, the Mishnah even says that he who eats the bread of Samaritans is like one that eats the flesh of swine. And you may ask... In this kind of division, in Jesus' day and in our day, what can a parable do? I mean, how can a parable make any difference? And the good news, in fact, is that the parable can make all the difference. Because this parable isn't just some abstract story. It's not an illustration about something. It's not a moral fable. This parable is a true story. You see, the good news, if we can hear it today, and so often we miss this when we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, the good news here is that this ancient parable, this ancient parable that's often avoided, we do everything we can to avoid it, to get around it, to find loopholes, but this ancient parable that is so often avoided has been in fact accomplished in your life. It's, it's happened. This is a parable about real history that has taken place in your life and in my life if we are in Christ. See, it begins by looking at the fact that this is an ancient parable. We have to recognize that this teaching is not new. This is not a New Testament, it's exclusively New Testament teaching. This is ancient Torah teaching. Verse 25. The lawyer, who, by the way, is not a lawyer like we think of today. A lawyer is a scholar of the law of God. This is a Bible teacher. This is a Bible professor that is getting up to ask Jesus a question. But we're told that he does it to put Jesus to the test. He's trying to trap Jesus. He's trying to get him in trouble. He's trying to find a cause that they can finally put this rabbi to death. And interestingly, putting Jesus to the test is the exact same word that is used of Satan himself back in chapter 4 when Jesus is being put to the test in the wilderness, temptation. So this lawyer is in some ways being the Satan character in this story. He's trying to trip up and trap Jesus. And what he's trying to get Jesus to do is to say something new, something that's not biblical, something that's not rooted in Torah, When he asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's hoping that Jesus says something heretical. But what does Jesus do? He knows what's happening. He sees through this. He turns the question back on the lawyer. Verse 26, what do you read in the law? How do you read it? In other words, how do you interpret what you read in the ancient law of Moses? And in verse 27, the lawyer responds and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. He's putting together two pieces of Torah, Deuteronomy chapter six and Leviticus 19. Deuteronomy six, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. And note that it's the lawyer who puts these together, not Jesus. And here's the point. Every Jew knew this. Every follower of Moses knew this. If you were asked the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You would say, I'm gonna link Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is ancient teaching. And that's why Jesus says in verse 28, you've answered correctly. You get a gold star. You did it. You got it right. That's exactly the right Jewish answer. Because it's ancient. Because it's Torah. And and just to be clear, later he's going to want to define what neighbor means. That's ancient as well. We already know, and he already knows from the law of God, that the foreigner, we're told later in Leviticus 19, the foreigner is to be loved like a neighbor, And we're told in Exodus 23 that even your enemies and your haters are to be treated with love like a neighbor. It's all there. This is ancient teaching. The point is this. We know. We know how we're called to live. It's not a secret. It's not new. It's not hidden. It's not complicated. We know what we are called to live by. Love God, love our neighbor as ourself. We know it. So why do we have such a struggle to live it? If we know how we're to live, why do we struggle? Why don't we see more neighborly love among us? Like Soren Kierkegaard says, the Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we're obliged to act accordingly. My God, we might say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? Or in the words of Mark Twain, it ain't the parts of the Bible I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I can understand. And that's why This ancient parable is so often avoided, right? We know what we're called to do, but we know how hard it is. We know how impossible it seems to live this. And so we do what we can to avoid it. Never overtly, but we find creative ways to get around it. What does the lawyer say in verse 29? Well, we're told Luke sees into the lawyer. Jesus sees into the lawyer. And we're told in verse 29 that the man, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, that's courtroom language, I want to be justified, I don't want to be judged, condemned, because the lawyer immediately, standing before Jesus, reciting this ancient law of God, love God and love your neighbor, he immediately, like you and I, feel condemned by that law. Immediately we feel the weight of this In the words of Kierkegaard, oh God, how could I ever fully live into that? He's condemned, so he seeks to justify himself. Verse 29 goes on to say, so he said, and who is my neighbor? See, he's looking for the loophole. He's looking that if he can narrow the definition of neighbor, then he can take this God-sized calling and reduce it down to something manageable, something man-made. Often how this would be interpreted of who neighbor is would be my fellow Jews, my fellow church members, or even more narrow, my good fellow Jews, the moral ones, the the moral upstanding members of my church, or even more narrow, the good Jews that are in my own little tribal unit. Not even the good moral members of the church, but just the ones that are in my immediate tribal group. These are the ones that I need to love. I can love God, and I can love that little cluster, tiny cluster, and those are my neighbors. And the man knows that he's seeking a loophole. He knows it because he's trying to get around the law of God. I remember being at a playoff game last year, Last year's playoffs, more hockey stories. I was at the playoffs with my 14-year-old. And as the crowd was getting riled up, because as often the referees are against us, I was shouting out some pretty ugly things at the referees. Really ugly things at the referees. And my 14-year-old just looks at me quizzically and says, Daddy... Love your neighbor? And I said to her, I said, not the referees. This is hockey. That's a totally different story. And she looked at me. People are around us listening to this conversation. And I said, it's different with hockey. And she said, really? See, we know deep within us the call of God. But we do what we can to get around it. to to excuse ourselves, to justify ourselves. Of course, I'm not going to treat that person with neighborly love after what they believe about this world, about what they think is going to fix our world, about the horrible things they've said about this or that, the other thing. We can find all kinds of excuses for our lack of neighborly love towards those who are different and divided and opposed to us. It gets really hard, especially if you understand the Greek here, because Jesus says in verse 28 to the man, do this and you will live. And it's in the present tense. What he means is you don't have to do this, don't just do this once. You gotta keep doing this. Keep doing this presently, not just when you were in fifth grade. Not just that one time when you did that wonderful, magnanimous thing. No, every day in the face of every conflict and every enemy and everyone opposed to you, each and every day, Jesus says, do this and you will live. And suddenly the weight of this becomes completely unbearable. Lord, how could I possibly live this? How can I possibly live into this? The problem is not God's law. The problem is my inability to live God's law. Which is why we need to listen carefully to the parable. We're so familiar with it we can miss what's here. We can miss the gospel. Because here's the good news. That this ancient parable that we work so hard to try and avoid has already been been accomplished in your life and in my life if we're in Christ. This is a true story about us, a true story about Jesus and us, you and me. Let me show you what I mean. You've got to read this parable in the context of the whole of Luke's gospel. You can't read this just in a vacuum just by itself. Oh, a nice little you know, Aesop's fable story, a nice little moral tale from Jesus, little parable, little illustration. No, you've got to read this parable in the context of the whole of Luke's gospel. And specifically, you've got to read this parable in the context of what happened just in chapter nine, immediately before this. In chapter nine, verse 51, we're told that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus tells this parable as he's journeying on the road to Jerusalem, on his way to bear the sins of humanity on his shoulders. As he is walking towards Calvary, he tells this parable. And all of a sudden, when you look at the description of the Samaritan, who does this sound like? When you read in the context of Luke's gospel, if he's on his way to Jerusalem to bear the sins of humanity, who does the Samaritan sound like? Listen to these words, verse 33. As the Samaritan journeyed and came to where the man was and saw him, he had compassion on him and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and lifted him on to his animal and took him to the inn and cared for him, and the next day took out two denarii and said to the innkeeper, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I return. Who does this sound like other than Jesus himself? When you read this in the context of the whole of scripture, you realize there is no one who is truly like this, but Jesus. This is describing the Lord himself. And if it's Jesus walking on that Jerusalem road, who's the half-dead man that he finds on the side of the road? He finds you and he finds me lying half dead on the road and to us, he comes and heals us. What do these words from Romans 5 mean? While we were enemies of God, we were reconciled through Christ. What do these words from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 mean? We were dead in our trespasses and sin but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive again in Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, suddenly we begin to read this parable when we read in the context of the whole of the gospel, just like the early church fathers, just like Augustine and Origen and those others who would allegorically interpret these parables. Here are these words from Ambrose. Ambrose says this. He says, robbers left you half dead on the side of the road. But you have been found lying there by the kindly Samaritan who is Christ. Wine and oil have been poured on you. You've been brought to the inn. You're being cured in the church. This is not some abstract story, some moral fable. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a story of what Jesus Christ has done for you if you have come to him in faith. This story has been accomplished and lived out in your life. This has taken place. You, if you're in Christ, this is your parable, your story. And let's just be clear. It needs to be completed. It needs to be accomplished. Because if this isn't accomplished, if this is some moral dictum, if this is some requirement from God, then verse 37 will sound horrifying. When Jesus says, you go and do likewise, we'll say, I surrender. I can't do this every day on my own power. How could I do this? It's condemnation. It's burden if it's on me. See, every other religion and ideology will tell you that if you want to reach a place of security and salvation and justification before whatever your definition of God is, you need to go on some massive quest, some heroic feat, climb to some moral height, and then you will have accomplished a sense of wholeness as a human being, but only Jesus is the one who comes and says, I know you can't climb up the mountain. I know that you can't heal your own wounds, so I will come and do it for you. Suddenly, verse 37, if this story is accomplished in our lives, becomes not a burden, but when Jesus says, you go do likewise, it's simply us learning to respond to his love. This has been done for you. So go and respond. Live in freedom, not as some moral requirement, but in response to what has already happened for you in your life. This is your story accomplished. We love because he first loved us. Freely you have been given, freely give. Like many, I grew up with Mr. Rogers and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I remember as I got a bit older, I thought it was rather childish, the won't you be my neighbor. But I remember getting to seminary and starting to study scripture seriously. And then I learned that Fred Rogers was in fact, as many of you might know, an ordained Presbyterian minister. His television show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, was his ministry. It was the medium of by which he decided to take the gospel to children in our world and to take the gospel to their families, to teach what it means to be a neighbor. And it wasn't childish and it wasn't simple. It was profound. 1969. 1969. Fred Rogers, white Mr. Rogers, sits in his television backyard with his feet in the swimming pool and as the black officer Clemens walks along invites him to take off his shoes and cool his feet with him in that same little pool Fred and officer Clemens washing their feet in 1969 don't tell me that's not a foot washing moment Lately It's not been a beautiful day in the neighborhood. But it can be if the church would only remember herself. Our world has forgotten how to be neighbors. In Jesus' day, During his earthly ministry, his world had forgotten how to be neighbors. And so he tells a parable that will transform his followers to begin living differently in this world. Because as they will discover as Jesus continues up that road to Jerusalem, to Calvary, that this parable is not some abstract story. It's not some moral fable. This ancient so often avoided parable they will find has been accomplished in their lives. Do you you want to know how this changes people? Just imagine for a minute that man in the story waking up in the inn two or three days later, bandaged, healed, sheltered, paid for, how is that going to change the way he lives his life? This is why we come to church. We come to church so that every week, because we are so ready to forget, every week through word and sacrament, we find ourselves again waking up in the inn. We again, through word and sacrament, are shown that we have been bandaged and sheltered and we've been healed and we've been paid for. As we come to the altar, we remember again that he found us when we were yet his enemies. He found us dying on the side of the road. He had compassion on us. He bound us, carried us, sheltered us, and paid for it all with these words, this is my body given for you this is my blood poured out for you this is what we remember every Sunday as we come back to church and as we remember ourselves then we are freed freed then to live in response to such mercy and love this is how the world gets changed This is how a divided and broken nation learns again how to hope and how to love and how to build a future for our children. Because this parable, if you're in Christ, this parable is your parable. This is your story. It's happened. It's completed. It is done. It is finished. So you go. Jesus says and do likewise for the sake of the world in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit Amen